The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome to a new week. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. I'm a little disheveled, but I'm here and I'm ready to go. uh, And I'm excited about tonight's program. We are going to return to our roots to a degree, but we're also going to talk about something that's just uh, seems to have the American consciousness right now. Um, True crime, and especially unsolved true crime. We know that one of the biggest sensations on Netflix in the last five years was the uh, Making a Murderer series, miniseries or limited series, I guess is what they're calling them. And then there was Making a Murderer 2. There was The Staircase. There, uh, There's the, the innkeeper, the gatekeepers, the, the keepers maybe, I think it was. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them, and they're all very, very popular, and they talk about crimes that are either just bizarre or unsolved or controversial. And people are really, really into it. We also know that a lot of the most popular podcasts are true true crime podcasts, um, and people are really interested in this topic. So our guest tonight is going to talk about two of his books. His name is Greg Clark. And his two books are very uh, diverse. The first one is called uh, Ghost Country Volume 1, and it's The Lost Hauntings of Southern Appalachia. And uh, the second book is Three Days in 63. Now, the first book, Ghost Country, talks about um, hauntings in Appalachia. It's pretty simple. Three Days in 63 talks about a 55-year-old, actually, I think it's now 56-year-old, unsolved murder of a woman named Frances Bullock. Uh, it's a fascinating story. It's got a lot of twists and turns, and as I said, it's unsolved, and he has written about it. And we're going to talk about that, and we're, we're going to be talking about ghosts tonight with Greg Clark. Um, looking ahead on the program, we are still shuffling things around for the rest of the week, but I know Ryan O'Shea will be with us. Ryan is an entrepreneur and a futurist, and I think Ryan will be here Wednesday night. We'll be talking about transhumanism, biohacking, and the future of humanity, always an interesting topic of conversation. Uh, Thursday night this week is the uh, 4th of July, so we'll have a best-of program Thursday night and Friday, as we do every Friday. And then Monday, Daniel Duke will be with us. He's the author of a book called Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. He prevents, presents evidence that Jesse James, who is his great-great-grandfather, hid treasure and encoded maps as part of the Knights of the Golden Circle. That's Monday night's program next week. So a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, and I did mention podcasts, and I want to I want to talk about this for a second here. Uh, as you know, Beyond Reality Radio airs live on state radio stations all over the country, and we certainly appreciate you listening live and listening to those stations. But some people just can't because of the hour, and they choose to listen to it as a downloadable podcast. Uh, our staff edits. Each episode gets it uploaded as quickly as possible so it's available um, as quickly as it can be so people can download it, listen to the program on their way to work, whatever you know, whatever uh, is convenient for them. And we thank you for doing that. Please share that podcast link. It's available in the iTunes podcast store. It's also available for Droid and all, uh, all the other uh, podcast options. Share it with people that you know would appreciate the topics we talk about here on Beyond Reality Radio, particularly the paranormal stuff. Obviously, that's a great, great way to uh, share some good information, good interviews with your friends who uh, are also interested in these discussions, these ideas. Um, and finally, I'll just say go, go to YouTube. I, I, I love to have you swing by the YouTube channel and subscribe to it. As we continue to uh, increase our subscriptions there, it's free. You know, it's just go to YouTube and just hit the subscribe button. Uh, it's JV Johnson on YouTube. We stream the show live there each night. And we also have an archive of programs there. I think there are about 300 back episodes of the program there, plus some special content. All right there on YouTube. Again, just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. Should come up. Give it a subscribe. Also, click on the little bell icon. That gives you a notification when we go live or when new videos are posted. Um, That's going to do it for the intro here. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in. Greg Clark will be with us. We'll be talking about two very distinct topics. One is about the unsolved murder of Francis Bullock from 1963, and the other 
is about the ghosts of Southern Appalachia. That's all coming up. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Welcome back to the program, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Like I said, tonight we're going to have two very distinct topics with our guest, Greg Clark. We're going to be talking about hauntings in Appalachia and also uh, a murder mystery that goes unsolved for over 55 years. uh, The murder of a woman named Frances Bullock in 1963. That still is an unsolved crime. We're going to be talking about all of this tonight. But first, let's welcome our guest. Greg, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's nice to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, so many neat things about what you're doing. And uh, I want to get a sense of you a little bit since it's the first time you've been on the program. I understand you run a uh, ghost tour company. My wife and I own and operate Where Shadows Walk Historic Ghost Tours in Western North Carolina. Multiple tours. And we've been doing that for seven very productive and fun years, absolutely. <laughs> Where did you say it was? In Western North Carolina. We're in a small town called Franklin, North Carolina. We do have some um, tours that run out of Silva, North Carolina, sometimes Waynesville. We actually um, are looking to put a tour in Nashville, Tennessee. My brother's going to be leading a tour out there once we can get that kicked off. But for seven years, we've been very productive in the Southern Appalachian Mountains with Where Shadows Walk Historic Ghost Tours. You, do you um, you say Western North Carolina? Is that near Asheville by any chance? I'm not that familiar we're with about, that area. But we are about an hour and a half west of Asheville. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Be- beautiful area there for sure. Yeah, um, gorgeous. And the gorgeous. Ta- and the town that you're talking about, Franklin, uh, that is actually the uh, site of this murder we're going to be talking about, right? It is. It yeah. is. So when did you develop an interest in the paranormal? I guess when I was born, I mean, since as as far back as I can possibly remember, when I was a little boy, I would check out every ghost story book that I could possibly check out at our local library. And and then as, you know, I'm 43 years old, so, you know, libraries are a little more I guess you might say at the time, <laughs> and as technology advanced and, you know, television, VCRs and DVD, you know, um, I would just follow everything I possibly could with ghosts, legends, myth, lore, history. And so, like, as far back as I can remember, I was enamored with the paranormal, the legends, the myths, the what ifs, the what goes bump in the night, everything. You, you've used a word there that I find very, very important, and I often feel like many paranormal investigators miss the importance of history. You you've, you use that word in describing why you enjoy it, um, and that's what I find fascinating as well, because often when we go on paranormal investigations or we research paranormal stories, hauntings, or whatever it happens to be, it's the history that comes alive that makes it uh, so tangible and makes it so unique and in many ways makes it touch the lives of people who are living today, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? I would agree 100%. And the history is the the catalyst. The history is everything. My wife and I, we call it preservation through presentation. That's what we do, preservation through presentation of the of the history. History is, with, without the history, I, I pack it up and I go home. I, as, as a day job, I'm an eighth-grade English and history teacher, and we do the historic tours, of course, on the side. for fun. We write the books. We do the presentations. But the history, without the history, like I said, pack it up and go home. That's where it's all at. The, the ghost stories, no matter, no matter where you're at in the world, the ghost stories arise 
from the history. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have a haunting. It's another thing to have a haunting, and through a little bit of research, you determine who that person might be, why their ties to that particular location are so strong, what happened to them while they're there, what happened on the property to other to other people that were living at the same time. I mean, then then the whole story comes alive. Yes. So um, one more question here about your ghost tours before we start to change the topic here. But um, you, you said you run them all the time. Are they, are they, are they year-round? Year-round. Unlike a lot of places, especially small towns, we have year-round tours because we have so many stories, so many stories in this region, Franklin especially, that we have to theme the tours. Um, and the tours themselves are two to two and a half hours long, as fast as we can possibly go. We have a, a tour called Murder in the Mountains. The common denominator, a common thread throughout all of those stories is murder in the ghost stories that have arisen from said murders. We have Into the Mystic um, Historic Ghost Tour, which most of the stories are mystical. We have Unfinished Business. Most of the ghost stories on that tour um, pertain to ghosts that seem to have left something undone or unfinished. We have the Woodlawn Cemetery tour, the Haunted Homes tour, and that's in one that's in one town year round. And we have, and you know, not to not to boast or brag, it's just it's the way it has been. We have really haven't had a week in seven years without you know several guests from all over the world partaking in these tours. We've been lucky. Why do you think that area has such a uh, rich history of paranormal activity, in addition to a rich history in general? I'm glad you asked that. On our End of the Mystic Tour, we have a general historic opening that we kind of share with all the other tours. But then we go into the the mystical side of, of Franklin. If you go all the way back to the first writings, to the first, the first time the Europeans put down in pen to parchment, pen to paper, what the what the Cherokee Indians of the region were calling the area, they were calling it Tususjenihai. I probably destroy that translation, but that in Cherokee meant the ghost country. And so that's in, in the 1700s. In the year 1730, a Scottish a Scottish nobleman by the name of Sir Alexander Cumming arrived in Franklin, North Carolina, because he had a dream. He was a wealthy Scottish um, gentleman live, living the life of Riley in Scotland. Everything was fantastic, but he had a dream that told him if he wanted to go to where the veil between the living and the dead on planet Earth was the thinnest, he had to go to a place called Nequasi, Tusus Genihai, and he came. He came wow. to Franklin, North Carolina, had held a summit there, and it took many chiefs back to Europe to show them off to the royals. It was a fantastic story. Uh, further on in that introduction of that tour, we talk about the Dare Stones. You probably you've know, heard of the Dare Stones. Sure. Some of the very last Dare Stones were found below Macon County in North Georgia. We talk about a Swami in 1987 who moved to Franklin to build a church because a dream brought him there about the veil between the living and the dead. And one of the biggest pieces is the very first EVP, and of course you all know what an EVP is, the very first EVP ever captured on planet Earth, and this is, this is a fun Google experiment for everybody, is in Franklin, North Carolina. George W. Meek arrived in Franklin, North Carolina in the year 1978. A dream told him to come to Franklin, North Carolina to be able to, develop, to build his devices, his, his devices to capture the voices of the dead or to act or devices to act as conduits so they can speak through. He received multi, on, multi um, many, many honorary doctorates for his contributions to the sciences over the years. He died in 1999 in Franklin. He's buried in Franklin, North Carolina. And in April of 1982, the very first EVP ever captured on Earth was in Franklin, North Carolina via Dr. Meek. People still come to his grave annually to pay homage to the father of paranormal sciences. Um, some people believe it's the minerals. We're called the gem capital of the world, corundum, rubies. There are only two places on planet Earth with matrices of sapphire beneath its soil. That's Burma and Franklin, North Carolina. So we're special. 
were special. And, you know, I just happened to be able to, as a historian, as a, as a storyteller, to be, reap the benefits of, of that history. Um, and, you know, and we have the final surrender of the American Civil War on our main street. Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox in April of 65, but the last Confederates to ever surrender were in Franklin, North Carolina, 12th day of May, 1865. And the history goes on and on. It's mystical. It's odd. It's dark. It's grisly. Fascinating. Well, you've convinced me to visit. I can tell you that right now. Are you part of the uh, the promotion, the tourism board there? Because you're doing a great I'm job. I'm not. I'm not. Um, so you have a website. It's called whereshadowswalk.com. And I, I took a, a look at it before we started our discussion here. And that's you've got all the individual tours listed there, right? Did I read it correctly? That's right, yes. Yeah, so if anybody's interested in in checking out the uh, variety of ghost walks and tours that you offer, again, it's whereshadowswalk.com. Walk.com. Greg has a couple of books to his credit, including Ghost Country Volume 1 and Three Days in 63. And we're going to start our discussion this hour with Three Days in 63. We will be talking about the uh, the other book, Ghost Country Volume 1, in the second hour of the program tonight. But Greg, um, Three Days in 63, it's about the story of Francis Bullock. Tell us who Francis Bullock was. Frances Bullock was a 40-year-old widow, a lovely, semi-wealthy for the region, 40-year-old widow who was brutally stabbed to death in her home in 1963. I would tell you exactly what day she was stabbed to death, but therein lies part of the mystery. She was um, last seen going into her home on the 26th of July, 1963. But she really she wasn't found until three days later. Hence the the title, three days in sixty three. That she's she's missing. She's gone. But she's found in the most unusual way. the The crime is never solved. It's one of North Carolina's oldest cold cases. I said she's brutally stabbed to death. No one ever pays for the crime. No one does a day of jail time for the crime. All of the evidence immediately is is gone. All photographs, whether it be from local um, photographers, newspaper photographers, or State Bureau of Investigation photographers, all photographs are gone by the next day. It's one of the most taboo, talked about, secretive, cryptic, spooky murders in North Carolina history, and it just happened to happen in Franklin, North Carolina. So she was last seen going into her home on July 26th. She was not seen again for three days until someone apparently went to her home and found her. Um, Do we know who found her body? We do. The person who found her body is actually the last person that she was with on the, the 26th. Frances Bullock, her husband had died to electrocution three years prior. His name was Ebulin. He had died in um, a horrendous um, electrocution working for the, the power company of Macon County. And she had been, she had been on the 26th. She had been with her her friends, um, Flora and Mary Ellis, and having fun. They had enjoyed. They they had gone, spent time together that day. They had gone to um, produce stands and visited friends and family. And it was about nine thirty at night on the the twenty sixth, and she decided she was going to go home to watch the Jack Parr show. We 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 we've detailed every every possible element of this story that we possibly can. She wanted to get home to see the Jack Parr show that night. The Smothers Brothers were actually going to be on there, and Jackie <laughs> Mason. We, you know, we found out who was going to be on the show that night. Wow. And she goes home, and she, um, she disappears. Now, she is a very popular woman. After her husband, Ebulin, dies, she is dating several 
um, different men over the next three years. Sometimes local women are calling it a bit scandalous, a little bit too much, too much talk going on. The next day, which was a Saturday, she was supposed to um, visit her mother. She was supposed to go out with a certain gentleman. Well, she didn't show up to the mother. She didn't show up to the gentleman. The gentleman shows up to her home. He sees that her car is parked there, and um, windows are rolled down, a bag of Vidalia onions on the front seat. All these things sound very, uh, you're thinking, why would I mention these things? This is a this is a woman who dressed like Jackie O, like you know Jacqueline Kennedy. She she was she was semi wealthy. She had a brand new car. She would have never left a bag of Vidalia onions sitting in her car, but she did. She left her windows down in the car outside her garage. She always pulled it into the garage. There were so many strange things that happened that night that she should have done, but she didn't do. Well, so the date for the previous day. Is peering through her window, and he's knocking on the door, calling out her name, Frankie. That was the, the nickname all of her friends and loved ones and family called her was, was Frankie. And so he's tapping on the windows, calling, because she's apparently home. Her car's there, but, there's no, but she's not. And so the doors are locked, and they're cupping their hands around the windows, all around the house, and there's, there's, she's not there. And there's, there's no sign of a struggle inside. Um, inside her home, she she has many many um, expensive pieces because she owns and operates uh, an antique shop out of her home. She was able to um, afford that antique shop due to the the payment that was given from the power company due to the negligence on their part with her husband's death. And so she has these. Um, she even has a 1700s violin worth thousands of dollars sitting in plain sight. But, and, and so these suitors, you might say, uh, are, are looking through the window. She's, she's not there, and so they go on. The next day rolls around. So wait a second. And the, that, that day yeah. when they were looking in the windows doing all that, that was the, the 27th? That was the 27th. Okay. And she's not visible. Mm-hmm. All right? And they see, well, then the, so they don't the, see her. So all the 27th goes by. Friends and family go by knocking on the door, leaving notes. Like I said, cupping their hands around the glass, looking. She's not there. Where's she at? Where's she at? Well, then the next day passes, the same thing. She's supposed to go to church with a gentleman at the Methodist church. Um, she's supposed to go to an all-Mozart concert at that church. She doesn't show up to the door. He knocks, he knocks. He's looking in. There's no one there. And this happens for one, two, three days. So there are notes stuck everywhere. Um, family, friends, where has she gone? Where has she gone? That's the question. Everybody's looking to... Uh, her mother is calling the police, and they're, you know, there's nothing really they can do. She's a 40-year-old woman. She's just not answering the door. You know, there's you know, no reason for, you know, kicking the door in. But finally, on Monday morning, um, her friends, who she'd been with on the 26th, go and they cup their hands around the glass, and they look in, and there she is. And she's lying on the floor with her head against the door that leads to the garage. She has her hands gingerly crossed across her midriff. Her ankles are lovingly crossed as if she's been placed. However, they can tell from where they're standing outside the locked door that she she appears to be dead. She isn't breathing. And so they immediately run to the next door neighbor and they call the police. And here the story gets crazier. The police officers in a small Smoky Mountain town in 1963 are not necessarily educated men. And so when the sheriff, um, Mr. Bryce Rowland, when he arrives on the scene, um, he looks in the window and realizes he has not the capability to tend to a, to a murder. So he he doesn't allow anyone to go in. He cordons off the, the home. He calls for the State Bureau of Investigation. At this point in time, coroners roll up in ambulances and, and deputies arrive, city police officers arrive, friends and family arrive, and they're held back from the actual home until State Bureau of Investigation forced their way in 45 minutes later. But then... The State Bureau of Investigation officers 
allow the friends and family to come into the home. The crime scene is jeopardized and destroyed immediately. You have local farmers reaching into her sink, finding a knife that she had she had cut cantaloupe with, raising it up, and saying things like, there's your murder weapon, you know. And so it was absolutely destroyed. The chief of police was the only one who wasn't on the scene. He happened to be tending to his son's dental appointment that day. And he was happy that he wasn't on the scene because of the how poorly it went. And that police chief actually um, went down in North Carolina history. His name was C.D. Baird as being the, the um, law officer that um, was the catalyst or the spearhead, you might say, for um, North Carolina police officers getting pensions. And then that spread around the country. So any law officer in America can think, Franklin Chief of Police C.D. Baird for his tireless efforts from the 30s to the 60s and in doing so. Well, the body's removed in 45 minutes, and everybody's just astounded that this has happened. This is a small southern Appalachian town. Things like this don't happen. And so whispers are on the wind, and everybody's got a suspect, and everybody, you know. Now, the next day, the the... State Bureau of Investigation officer and the Franklin Press photographer, after having after having taken hundreds of photographs the day before, the crime scene day, while the body lay, even though it was only there for forty five minutes, they took hundreds of photographs inside and outside of the house. Snap, snap, snap. Three different cameras for the for the Franklin photographer, in fact. But the next morning, with a pale face and and trembling hands stuffed into his jeans pocket, the photographer came and said that he apologized to the police, but he had forgotten to load film in all of his cameras. Oh, wow. Well, they were furious, you know, so they would believe maybe one, but not three. And so within an hour, the State Bureau of Investigation officer, he called and said that his cameras had malfunctioned as well, and there were no photographs. And at that moment, at that moment, the sheriff and the chief of police just in unison realized this isn't to be solved. This will never be solved. Someone is is ensuring that the evidence is, is going to be gone. We're not going to be able to do this. And sure enough, the evidence, all the evidence that existed truly was the dress she had on, um, a knife that they did find in the sink that with cantaloupe rinds. Um, her Italian sandals that she had on, and within two to three days, the evidence had been lost. They were contacted and said that no one can find the evidence. So the evidence was lost until the 1990s, 30 years the evidence was lost. But the crime plays out like a movie. Every day, every week, every month, every year, from 1963 to the present, to the present, something would happen that would make you say, no way. It just couldn't be. There's no possible way. The irony, nothing is this situationally ironic. <laughs> nothing. And so that in a nutshell, in a nutshell, is the murder. No, no, um, no one ever paid for the crime. No one ever... Arrested no ever, for the yeah, crime. No one was ever charged with the crime, right? Never charged with the crime. Still uh, one of North Carolina's um, oldest open cold cases. And it, as you learn more and more about it, anytime it, it's fascinating, your, your mouth just stays in awe, constantly dro- dro- dropped open. Anytime that there was um, a partial, we'll say, a partial confession, or it looked like something was about to happen, the person would die. An example, an example. Six months after Mrs. Bullock died, a the coroner, the coroner, he races into one of our large cemeteries wherein um, a funeral is going down, and he pulls up to the funeral, leaves his door open, car running, races up to the funeral home official officiating off to the side, 
grabs him by the lapels and starts screaming, I did something bad. I did something bad. And so the friend, the, the official, which is a friend of his that works with him, is realizing he's got alcohol on his breath, and he's pushing him to the side. Stop it. Stop it. You know, because family's looking at this. This is disrupting, a, you know, a, a, the funeral. And he yells at him. He says, get home. I'll call you tonight. All right. I'll call you tonight. You tell me what's happened. He says, okay, you call me. You call me. All right. And so he goes home. And he, at the end of the day, he attempts to call his friend. He's talking to his wife. You know, um, they're sharing suppositions as to what this bad thing could have been. And their their uh, assumption was that he had been cheating on his wife and that he was, you know, the marriage was over and this is what he was telling. However, um, he never got a hold of it. So he figured, well, I'll find out tomorrow at work. But the next day at work, he was met by local law enforcement to let him know that that the um, coroner had died in the night wow. he, he, um, of an apparent heart attack at 49 years old. I mean, I just want to ask a follow-up question regarding the discovery of uh, Frankie or Francis uh, Bullock's body. You said that uh, uh, over the course of the days between the 26th of July when she was last seen and the 29th of July when she was discovered, many people were peering through the windows trying to figure out if she was home or not. Nobody saw a body up against the door leading into the garage until the 29th when uh, the friends that last saw her on the 26th came back looking for her. Are, are you implying that um, that maybe that body was placed there sometime closer to the 29th, or are we just suggesting that people didn't notice it in the many times that people were looking in those windows? Complete placement. This was, this was placement. The... Um the general assumption is that the body was in the garage the three days um, while a cleanup was going on deep in the nights of the, the previous night. Whenever they, the State Bureau of Investigation officer ran fingerprints in the home on the day that, that, they, that they went in, even Mrs. Bullock's prints weren't in the home. Mm. They found a partial print of her brother who worked with her, but the print was underneath a television set. That's an easily missed, you know, that's the brother helping move a television set, sure. you know, and the one that's been missed. There was a print of a boyfriend who had since moved to the eastern part of North Carolina at the top of a cabinet in the kitchen. Again, probably a miss. And that was it. Hardly anything of the deceased. It was a complete wipe down. There was no sign of struggle. There was very little blood, a small pool of blood beneath the, the victim's body. And this was a woman who was, bloodened, who was bludgeoned brutally. She had, she had um, one lung. She had lost a lung when she was, uh, when she was um, young. Um, to tuberculosis in Black Mountain, North Carolina Sanatorium. She had the surgery. Her lung was punctured. Uh, her wrist was broken. She had defense wounds in her hand. But the main, the main um, attack wounds, you might say, were in the lower abdomen, in the intestines, which were severed, which were, you know, just cut to pieces. Yeah. So the blood should have been everywhere. It should have been just a, a bloodbath in there, but it wasn't. It was a very neat, tidy, clean scene with a little drainage below the actual, below the, the body. I want to go back to something you said regarding uh, Frances, or as you said, her she was called Frankie. Um, mm -hmm. Her home, which was obviously a crime scene, um, yeah. obviously where they found her body. Um, she was unseen for three days. Her car was uncharacteristically left out in the driveway with onions in in it. Um, yeah. The murder itself sounds rather brutal, which means there was probably some noise involved. There was a long uh, cleanup involved, which was very thorough. Um, this all went on for days. How close was the nearest neighbor, and did the neighbors notice anything unusual during this time? Wonderful question. The this is this was. You might say this was a suburban area of the small um, uh, of Franklin, 
which is a bit rare because Franklin, North Carolina is still, uh, it's in one of the largest counties in North Carolina in Macon County, but it's still very agrarian. So you have, you know, you have miles sometimes between homes. But Mrs. Bullock lived inside the city limits, and so there were, you could throw rocks to the different houses and hit them on the side, you know, across the street or beside. So she had close neighbors. And the only thing that any neighbor, that any neighbor heard, one neighbor had dogs, and their dogs in the dead of the night of the 26th just went nuts, went crazy. That's one. And another neighbor um, woke to the sound in the dead of the night as well of a woman sobbing as if she were running. All right. Now, this doesn't uh, and no no one thinks that this is Mrs. Bullock, you know, running and sobbing. You know, she's found in her home. But a lot of a lot of people think, no, maybe this has something to do with the with the suspect, with the killer, with, you know, something in the scene. But other than the sound of a sobbing woman running and the dogs going crazy, it's absolute radio silence. No one claimed to have heard or seen anything on that night or the, 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 the next two nights to follow. Let's. Um, uh, we are taking phone calls, by the way, at 607-282-4497. I want to get to a listener question here. This is Barry in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show. Hi, JV. What's up, buddy? And Greg, I can't wait to talk to you, but back to you, JV. How about those Yankees and Red Sox <laughs> over in London? Yeah, right? I mean, that was a football score, wasn't it? <laughs> Especially the first day, 30s or something, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy stuff, crazy stuff. It's a little small park. But anyway, um, it's amazing how good they, they were accepted over there. I'm surprised baseball is not more important. Yeah, yeah, but, it's uh, pretty interesting. Anyway, Greg, listen, you and yeah, I yeah. have met. My wife and I have a condo in Highlands, North Carolina, which is only about All 30 right. miles from Franklin. And uh, we yeah. come right down Highway 64 there into Franklin, and we love the little town. And we went on your tour one day last summer. Well, fantastic. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, we sh- oh, we did very much so. It took about two hours, and we shook hands, but you shook hands with about a million people in the last seven years. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bill, anyway, what do you say, <laughs> Greg? What do you think yeah. about the theory that, that this lady, Bullock, was killed somewhere else? And she was brought in, and the SBI was somehow, it was a high up official that they did not want to be caught. And they covered up this thing and placed her body back in there. It took a couple of days after she was killed somewhere else. Thanks a lot, JV. I'll take the answer off there. Thank you, Barry. For, that's a great question. Greg, what are your thoughts? Thank you. A funny, funny thing about that. Uh, this is that it's strange that he would that he would bring that up. I was in our historical museum about two weeks ago. We have we have multiple museums in Franklin, North Carolina. We preserve our history. We have a uh, a toy museum, a historical museum, the Scottish Tartan Museum, Gem and Mineral Museum. But I was in our historical museum, which I'm on the board of, and I was. Um, bringing in some brochures, actually, talking to the curator. And there was a man inside that I'd never met before, probably about 90 to 93 years of age, sitting in an old cane straight-back chair, just like something off of a, the Andy Griffith show. You know, we're lucky with that. We actually have that environment. And I brought the brochures in. I was talking to the curator. And he mentioned the book coming out, the curator did. And so the old man perked up. And he um, stood up and he said, son, he says, what are you talking about? And I told him the Francis Bullock murder. And and he looked at me with knowing eyes and he says, she was my first cousin. And she would have been about 95 years old today. And so the, the age worked out. And so he said, she was my first cousin. And he said, he looked at me and he said, she wasn't killed in that house, son. 
He uh-huh. said she was killed elsewhere, and she was brought in. He went so he went into into such detail as to to describe a roll of carpet that she was taken in from the car into the home in, and claiming that he'd heard you know this from this family member and that family member. And I you know I, I shook his hand, thanked him. You know I was actually upset a bit. You know that the book you know was already ready to come out. I would have added it yeah. to it in some way, but you know it was a little bit too late for that. Um, it's what what he um, what Barry was was saying is a is um, believed by some people that she wasn't murdered in the home, but she was brought in, and that would account for the the um, nice, clean murder scene, the no sign of struggle, the the lack of blood. It might even That's account. For, yeah, it might even account for the way her car was, if it was used as the transport vehicle as well, and just left there. Possible. Um, so we're. I find we're going to run out of time before we run out of uh, topic here. Um, well, let's talk about suspects a little bit. Uh, sure. They must have had a list of suspects. Who are who is on the top of that list? They had a long list of suspects. The suspects were predominantly, number one, her brother, her brother whom claimed to be at a drive-in movie with his wife on the night that she disappeared. He took a polygraph test, failed it. They both failed it miserably. He couldn't tell um, the police the title of the film or anything about the film. He was the only one ever jailed, but he was only jailed for the night of her funeral. He went into such a fury over the accusation that he had anything to do with it that they had to jail him for the night to keep him off the street, and he was not allowed to attend his own sister's funeral. But he was let go right after that. Yeah, my understanding um, is that he, he would go into a rage anytime he was questioned about this at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the suspicious. remainder of his life until 1977 and his death, I do believe. Very suspicious. But, um, yeah, there were other um, – th- there was a lawn man – who um, tended to her lawn. He was a suspect. Multiple suitors, multiple boyfriends, many of which moved out of town right away after after the murder. There were um, friends, like like, like um, the, the two that she'd been with prior to, you know, and that they found the body. They were, of course, suspects. The coroner was always a whispered suspect. The, the list was long, but nothing ever came to fruition. No one ever paid for or even was accused officially of doing anything to Mrs. Bullock. Did they have any evidence that specifically pointed to one person over another person? Was there anything that tied any of those people to either a crime scene or the body or anything? I mean, it may not have been enough to make an arrest, but at least something that would have tied one of those suspects to the uh, the act of the, of the murder. They had absolutely nothing that would tie one person over another. The only time that evidence was about to be found or that there was some hope, there was a gasp of hope, was 30 years um, Thirty years after the murder. My father was the assistant chief of police of Franklin, North Carolina at the time. And the lawn man that I told you about earlier, the lawn man had become a town drunk, an Otis Campbell, an Andy Griffith Otis Campbell. Many people claim that it was his, you know, his nerves and his guilt that, you know, did this. But 30 years after this happened, my father picked him up for public intoxication, and he was filling out the paperwork to put him in the drunk tank for the night, and he went into a fit, went into a fit screaming that he knew what happened to Frankie Bullock and that he was the one who had hid the murder weapon and how he had hid the murder weapon, how he had aided in moving the body from the garage to the front. But he was he was extremely drunk when he was saying these things. However, it didn't stop my father from believing him. My father truly did believe what he was saying. Put him in the drunk tank for the night, and the next day was ex- was excited to, you know, to follow up this interview. He, though, had been working 3 to 11, so he put him in the drunk tank, and around midnight he'd stayed after. Um, his shift, and he went home. And when he was to go back in at three o'clock the next day, he was really excited about addressing this with the chief and 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 bringing him back in for further questioning. However, 
he'd been killed in the road. He had killed been in the road? run over in the road. <laughs> he was he had been run over in the road. And this is the way of the Francis Bullock murder mystery. All right, so when he... anyone even attempted, it even looked like someone was going to say something. Their life ended. Uh, we've got to go to break here, um, but I just want to uh, clarify something with your father's discussion with this town drunk who was the lawn man for Francis yeah. Bullock. Did he say anything that would have been known only to the police or the investigators? I mean, did he have that kind of intimate knowledge? He claimed to have, to have hidden the murder weapon in a place in a place that would have fit perfectly in, a, in the old the old fairgrounds behind Mrs. Bullock's house, and on top of that, prior to prior to that, he had been um, in possession of the only the only missing piece the only piece of her missing purse that had ever been found. Her purse was taken from the scene. That was the only thing taken yeah. in the crime scene, mm-hmm. and she had a brooch watch in her purse. He had been. He was caught in possession of the brooch watch. Oh, he was. That's, that's so. That's he was. So that's the was, was he caught, thing that we have. Was he caught in possession of the brooch, brooch watch thirty years later, or more uh, closely to the no. time of the murder? Close to the time of the murder. So okay. you had that, and then of course, and then nothing ever came to fruition of that because they couldn't prove that was the exact brooch watch. And then thirty years later, we have the partial confession, you right, might call it. Right. But then we have the immediate death following. Um, a couple things. What what is the fascination with these types of true crime stories? As I mentioned in the opening segment of tonight's show, um, Netflix has found a, a magical formula with things like Making a Murderer and The Staircase. And there's a lot. There are many cable channels who present things like Forensic Files and other unsolved crimes or solved crimes programs. What is our fascination with true crime? Oh my gosh! You know, I, I, I don't have an answer for what our fascination with true crime is, other than we, we have the fascination. You know, we'll we will flip, you know, we'll we'll flip past National Geographic, some beautiful robins or cardinals to to make sure that we can watch the new Charlie Manson special. You know, yeah, yeah. We 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 as human beings, we somehow are are pulled to the macabre. We we. We're we're interested in in the dark and the and the grisly. I think we always have been as as humans, and I don't know what it is inside us that has to seek it out, has to know more about it. But you know the television shows, movies about serial killers. You know, be it Manson or Lizzie Borden or you know um, whomever. You know, we're just pulled. We're tugged to, to, to know more about it. We can't take our eyes off of it. John Wayne Gacy. We yeah. have to. In fact, I'm going to tomorrow, tomorrow, going to a, a, a crime museum, Alcatraz East, you know, going to, to, to study um, a lot of the pieces at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum. So just, I don't know. We do it. We have a, we <laughs> I don't have it. Yeah, We have about a minute here before we have to go to our next break, and I need to ask you point blank, based on the research you've done in writing the book, who do you think killed Francis Bullock? <laughs> uh, I wish I could tell you that. <laughs> I do. I, I can tell you this. I'll give you this. I believe that it was um, a female because oh. of the the ferocity of the lower abdomen thrusts, uh, stab wounds, and actually the, the um, doctors who, who attended the, the autopsy and the, the nurses, the doctors, and the civilian men who were called in to witness, they, were, they, were, um, they overheard the doctors talk about this being the work of a woman. After all their many, many years, uh, in medicine, seeing crimes, heinous, you know, crimes, that this was something that had been passionate and personal. Right. All so right. other than that, that, that's probably all I could say. Uh, we've been talking about your book, Three Days in 63. Now, we didn't get a chance to really thoroughly go through the discussion of the murder of Francis Bullock, which, again, remains unsolved 55 or almost 56 years later. Um, but I'm assuming that uh, your book details a lot more than we were able to cover tonight. 
Absolutely. And the book is a novel. It was the only way that, that I could put 55 years into, into a scope, seeing as I wasn't there when this murder occurred, um, July 26, 1963, I'm only 43 years old, so I'm shy of that. So what I did is I took, I took a lifetime of living with the story via my father, the chief of police prior to, to him, um, long in-depth interviews with the last living law officers and civilians who participated in the case, so the autopsy five years ago, most of which are, all of which are dead now. The last one actually just died um, this last week, the last law enforcement officer. And so I, I put it into novel form. The only, the only fictional part of the, of the story are, is some created dialogue between characters. Um, other than that, you get, you get the, the best, most, the closest unvarnished depiction of the story that, one could, that, that I could possibly put together from multiple different perspectives. And I actually used the last radio show that I was on to um, tie it together. I was on a, a radio show out of Little Rock, Arkansas, five years ago, talking about the first presentation we were doing at the 50th anniversary at that point in time. And um, you'll see that if you read the book or anybody out there reads the book, that every other chapter is the dialogue between myself and the radio personalities um, moving the story uh, along through about 45 chapters. And um, I think it's a, a pretty fantastic read. I'm pretty proud of it. So the other book we were going to spend some time on, which now we just have a few minutes, is uh, Ghost Country, Volume 1, The Lost Hauntings of Southern Appalachia. Now, um, I find this to be an interesting uh, transition here because we were talking about Frances Bullock and the house that she was found in. Whether she was murdered in that house is a little bit unknown at this point. But have you had an opportunity to investigate paranormally that house? Oh, yes. Well, I haven't had an opportunity to actually go inside and investigate that house because someone lives in the house now. I know who that is, and I have addressed that person. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they weren't so keen on having me come in. But um, as a teenager, as a teenager, that being one of the, the rumored haunted houses of the region, many, many right. times we investigated the outside of it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Did she ever see anything? Pick up anything? I don't know if you if you were if if those investigations were sophisticated enough that you were bringing recorders for EVP or anything. But did oh, you ever catch no, anything? No, not not yeah. at all. These yeah. were these were high school kids right. peering through the windows, scaring each other. No. So and 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 the current owner won't allow the in house investigation. So, uh, what made you um, interested in writing a book about uh, some of these? I guess what they are, are reported hauntings and kind of ghost stories of the region. Absolutely, um, Ghost Country: The Lost Hauntings, Volume One, twenty-five short stories, and they are true stories. These are not fictional tales, and the the rich history. The, the, every single story has a has a strong spine of rich history that most people don't know about. All right, so you got this fantastic lesson to be learned in each story, and they range from, from mountain witches to possessed homes to classic hauntings along dark southern trails. You name it, the book has, has got it. Tell us about some of the stories. Um, you know, whenever you a, a person takes a region and starts to collect some of these stories. I find it very, very fascinating because many times the stories have a, have a particular twist that ties them to the geography. Uh, what's kind of unique about the area? And give us a couple examples of some of the stories in the book. Okay. Uh, I'll give you an example of how, how we take the rich history and we put the ghost story to it. So if you were to Google right now, if you were to Google Abraham Lincoln and... Abraham Enloe, you're going to find right away that there are multiple multiple sources, multiple pages, and many many books that have written have been written about the lineage of Abraham Lincoln and how most likely he was born in Western North Carolina, either in Macon County or Swain County. And it's fascinating. I, I didn't know this until a few years ago, and I was digging down into it. And so. When you look into the lineage of Lincoln, 
and the most likely, most likely, his his father being a, a wealthy farmer by the name of Abraham Enloe. The history is there, so you get this strong spine of history. But the ghost story connected to it is of an old casket maker from this time period in the early 1800s, very early 1800s in in the region, and how he would build boxes for the dead in his home, and how he killed his handicapped son, burned him alive, and moved in. And after his son's death, he moved into his old barn, and he built boxes for the dead for the remainder of his life. And the ghost story that that comes forth is after the old casket maker's death, a a white, or you might say a European medicine man who learned the sacred art of Cherokee healing from the Cherokee in the region, has to he has to attempt to to heal a young girl who lives along the the river road, and so he has to pass the old casket maker's barn in the the process, and you have the classic just awful macabre tale of this late night ride, very similar to to um, Ichabod Crane and the, the the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman. But they're they're true stories that have been passed down just generation after generation of what happened to this this doctor and what what jumped out of the barn loft as he's as he's passing by in the night. And it's tale after tale like this, these real stories that have come from multiple lips over the decades, over the decades and generations, with history backing them, backing it up, that will blow your mind. History that any person can simply Google and will be like, oh my God, that really happened? I can't believe that we have, you know, that this, this occurred here. Um, that's what the book is. That's, and um, we have a fantastic story in the book called um, The Mountain which, and it's a true story about uh, a woman who lived in the 1800s in in our region by the name of Granny Rebecca Hoxett Galloway Aiken, mm. and she was a mountain witch who would take who would do sacrifices at a rock called the Judicala Rock, and if you were to look this up, the Judicala Rock is the oldest petroglyph in like in America, and it's it's we have that we have Judicala Rock. And it's never been, no one's ever been able to figure out what, what tribe of people, what kind of people could have carved this giant stone. And so she would go there and she would do sacrifices and all these different things. And the people of the region claimed that she lived 150 years and she was, you know, these wonderful tales. And so we have stories about Granny, which we call her Granny Beck, you know, that she's got that long name. But just 25 stories, um, some of some the most macabre tales you've ever heard in your life. Wow. <laughs> some some really some really nasty stuff. How but, did you, but every story historic. Yeah. How did you uh, how did you assemble these stories? What, what was your uh, are these places that you investigated yourself or visited yourself in a lot of in some of the cases? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, um, we'll take the granny the granny Beck story, the mountain witch story. Um, her old home place was so far back in the mountains that we had to hire a guide. The guide actually lives with no electricity. He lives with no electricity, no running water deep in the mountains. And we enlisted his aid because he's elderly and he'd lived there his entire life. And he met us uh, at the top of a mountain. <laughs> we had to climb a mountain to meet him. He's crouched down with um, long earrings of feathers, long hair. He's not an Indian. He's a white man, but just this eclectic old guy. And without many words, he, you know, we hiked down to the old, to the old Granny Beck house. The house is gone, of course, just the, the fire, you know, portions of the fireplace and her stone wall. And we, of course, take pieces of the stone wall. We have a little shop in, in Franklin where people you know, they they start their tours there to purchase their their tickets there, and then there's a little museum of odd odd and macabre things like the stone, like pieces from the stone wall from from Granny Beck. So, absolutely, we research the heck out of everything. We travel we travel to the sites. Uh, I, I've lived in libraries and you know in the backs of old museums, researching this and that to put it all together so that. So that I have the, 
the best possible depiction so that I'm not creating fiction, but that I'm giving something, that, that I'm passing something along when I'm gone. Um, these stories, these stories will be something that would have been lost maybe had we not done what we did. So that's that's what we did with Ghost Country Volume One. That's what we'll do with Ghost Country Volume Two. I want to send a shout out real quick to um, my friend Gene Page who did the um, the cover shot, beautiful, beautiful cover shot for um, the author pick and everything for um, Ghost Country. He did pictures inside the book as well. He's a still shot photographer for the. Walking Dead and um, so many other Hollywood favorites and horror films and everything that um, he helps us out with. Greg, have, like have, that. He, yeah, have, yeah. You, have you ever had a personal paranormal experience that you can share with us? Absolutely. Far too many to share, <laughs> but I'll pick one. Here's, look, let's start with childhood. All right. I'm going to, uh, I'll give you this one because maybe it'll kind of frame why I am the way I am, why I'm interested in things I'm interested in. When I was, I grew up in a, um, a home with so much activity, so much paranormal activity, it became commonplace. It was accepted. It was just the norm. It was part of our day to day. My brother and I, we, when we would, um, when we were teenagers, he's six years younger than I, but when we were teenagers and we finally got enough freedom to have our own car and we would arrive home, you know, late when we came in to our house, say it was one o'clock in the morning, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, we would come into our house, maybe crash down on the couch, flip on the television. Within 30 minutes, there would be a knock on the door in the living room, just a hard knock. And for the first probably 20 times, we checked it. You know, we went outside, we looked around until we realized there was nothing physically there. And the knock would come at that point in time. If we were to stay up till two o'clock, the knock then came in the house, to the coffee table beside us, just mm-hmm. loud raps, bum, 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 bum. And so at that point in time, we'd stand up and we'd you know, smile and say, okay, I got it, going to bed. All right? We were so used to these nocturnal messages, to these um, full-bodied apparitions. My, my brother saw the, the legs of a soldier um, descending the stairs at one point in time. There were two graves in our yard, two small children who died in a wagon accident in the 1800s. And the elderly people in my family, they tended to the graves, kept them mounded and marked for many, many years. So from the time I was born, I've had paranormal experiences all the way up till today. And it, it, the, it fascinates me so much. I can't pretend to understand it. I don't pretend to explain it. I would never say I'm an expert on anything. I've just experienced many, many things. Do you think that there certain people are more inclined to be either receptive or even be a magnet for this type of activity? I do 100%. I do 100%. I can't I don't know why, but on my tours, so many people will come up to me and they'll be like nothing's ever happened to me and I so desperately want to see something, I want to experience something, you know, and I'll of course smile at them and say, "Well, maybe tonight might happen, you know, and we'll go on to the next next story." But I do believe that, and I don't know the why or the how, but I believe some people uh, – I spoke to, a, to an old man who's a head of a paranormal, um, paranormal um, team out of Lakeland, Florida, and he explained it like this. He said that certain people are beacons, that they shine red from the other side that the, uh, the other side, spirits on the other side, see them as just this glowing, shining red. They race to them. Yeah, you know, and I'm not, you know, how does he know what he said? But it always stuck with me. Sure. You know, yeah. a little uh, interesting. Yeah, well, last question for you here, then we're going to be out of time. Um, I know the area that you live in and you've done most of your work in is also a bit of a hot spot for uh, Bigfoot activity. Have you ever done any work oh, there? Oh, yeah. Um. The Bigfoot stories are immense and intense, and, uh, and so many people have their stories. Um, every few weeks, there's a new sighting on our local television, um, social media, news. You know, in this community, Bigfoot has been seen. And um, the Cherokee Indians, this is part of our End of the Mystic tour, the Cherokee Indians had a name for these Bigfoot creatures. They called them Bujum. B-O-O-J-U-M, 
and it wasn't one, but it was the entire race of these these large ape men of the mountains, Bujum. So um, we talk about them on the tour, and I'm a firm believer that that they are in the region. Absolutely. So the books um, are available where, Greg? The books are available on our website, www.whereshadowswalk.com. You can just go to our website and go to the store, and you can purchase right now. You can purchase three days in 63 prior to it coming out with the official release date on the 26th of July. Um, you can purchase Ghost Country. Um, we'd love for you to come to the website and, and do that. It'll um, Ghost Country's been available all over the world on you know, the World Wide Web for a while now, and um, Three Days and 63 will be available Amazon everywhere else, like I said, the 26th of July. But love to have you pre, pre-order your copy right now with us through whereshadowswalk.com. Hope and, you enjoy it. And what's, uh, what's next on your plate? Next on my plate, I am going to do a campfire. My, the next book is Campfire Stories. They're shorter stories three to five pages long, and my brother, Scott, he is an artist, fine artist. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and he is going to illustrate. It's going to be very much like the old book, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, so he's going to illustrate, and I'm going to do the story, so that's the next project, and always looking at new new tours and presentations, but that's the that's the next thing on the on the docket. All right. Well, uh, Greg, it's been a fascinating conversation. Good luck with the book, Three Days in 63. And keep us up to date on your work. I'd love to hear from you from now and then. We'll get you back on the show again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. That's going to do it for tonight. Thank you to Greg Clark for being with us. Great and fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed that. Um, Pick up Three Days in 63. Sounds really interesting. Tomorrow night we'll be talking with I'm not sure who because we're still in flux. I'm not sure who it's going to be, but we will have a great guest for you tomorrow night. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm JV. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and JV Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For JV Johnson, follow at JVJ Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.